with more books available than ever before, it's becoming even harder to filter through all the noise to find an author and series that you can put your trust in. Through author interviews, audio sneak peeks, and personal reviews, we provide you with the information you need before you take a chance on your next adventure. Join us every month as we highlight an independent author and the worlds they've created. So sit back, relax, and welcome to the Indie Author Prologue. Hello and welcome to the Indie Author Prologue. I'm your host, T. Norman. I want to take a few moments to give a quick introduction about our guest on the show today. I'll be talking with Andy Peloquin, and he describes himself first and foremost as a storyteller and an artist. Words are his palette. Fantasy is his genre of choice, and he loves to explore the darker side of human nature through the filter of fantasy heroes, villains, and everything in between. Andy is also a freelance writer, a book lover, and a guy who just loves to meet new people and spend hours talking about his fascination for the worlds he encounters in the pages of fantasy novels. In Andy's words, fantasy provides us with an escape, a way to forget about our mundane problems and step into worlds where anything is possible. It transcends age, gender, religion, race, or lifestyle. It is our way of believing what cannot be, delving into the unknowable, and discovering hidden truths about ourselves and our world in a brand new way. Fiction at its very best. Now before we start our show, I wanted to give a few pieces of information as we dive into it. First off, uh, this is our first show as the Indie Author Prologue, and with that there are always hiccups. And after recording the interview with Andy, I actually lost the audio to our interview um, it was backed up on my hard drive, but in only small pieces, so it is put together back again, and there is a little bit of choppiness to it. So I want to give that a, as a heads up before you get into the interview and hear it yourself. Now, I did my best to make it sound nice and smooth, but there are a few spots where you can kind of hear a little chop in there, and I apologize for that. Another thing I want to mention is that I had a momentary brain lapse during the interview, and when I purchased Andy's book, I bought the uh, three-book collection called Dark Blade Avenger. And the first book is Dark Blade Assassin. And now I got a little bit confused in there and I mentioned Dark Blade Avenger instead of Dark Blade Assassin. And the series is the Hero of Darkness. So I apologize for any confusion there might be. The book we are discussing is Dark Blade Assassin by Andy Peliquin. With that, I hope you enjoy the show. It's a great interview with Andy. I learned a lot, and I know you will too. So I will be back after the episode to let you know what happens next. So without further ado, here's the interview. Uh, welcome, Andy, to the Indie Author Prologue. I'm excited for you to be here kind of on the initial episode. I'm excited to talk about your series, uh, Dark Blade Avenger. Um, I really enjoyed the book. I just finished it probably a week ago, already partway through book two, so I'm excited 
to talk about the story. But first off, tell me a little bit about your author journey. Uh, when did it start? What was your motivation? Who really inspired you? All of that. All right. So I guess I was, I come from a very creative family. My dad's a musician. My mom is a writer. I have artist siblings. Like basically I was the only kind of dud in the bunch <laughs> essentially because I can't draw to save my life. Uh, and then I discovered writing. I had a elementary school teacher who was incredibly passionate about writing and the arts and sciences. So he got me into that and I kind of picked it up a little bit. And then when I was 15 or 16, I found myself with a lot of free time on my hands. And this was before internet connections were widespread. So I had Microsoft Word and Windows Paint. Obviously, you know, I had, I had to choose the word. And so I, I started writing this horrible, horrible story. It was like Jason Bourne meets James Bond meets the Fast and Furious on steroids. And, you know, I think I got like five or six chapters in. There was martial arts. There was snowmobile chases. There was gunfight, like like everything, uh, you know, a 15-year-old boy imagines. And so I, del I deleted it because it was just total garbage. <laughs> um, but then I found I had so much fun doing it. And so when I was 17 or 18, I kind of picked it back up again and wrote a few pieces, uh, mainly just short stories and things sort of humorous to entertain myself and other people and and then I got married had a family and didn't really do anything on it till my early 20s and I I was talking with a, a publisher friend of mine she has a comic book publishing company I was like oh I've always wanted to write for comic books I love them and so she's like well send me whatever you got so I had this piece that I'd written on Halloween one night this dark gritty piece um, and I sent it to her and she loved it. And she's like, I want to publish it. And so I thought, okay, if I could write something like this, something that would make someone want to publish it when I was 19, what could I do now in my mid-20s? So I sat down and I hammered out um, a graphic novel script, which was basically 300 meets the chain of dogs from the Malazan series. It was just basically this fighting retreat, grueling, horrible, everybody winds up dead. But it was awesome. It was so much fun to write. And, and I, as soon as I did that, I was, I was totally hooked. So after that, I actually sat down to plot out the next thing. And that was the graphic novel script that would one day become Dark Blade Assassin. Okay. So that all sounds very on par with the Hero of Darkness as a whole, kind of like that theme of it. I was like, oh yeah, I, I can see where that came from now. Uh, that's cool. With this whole series, kind of what was your inspiration behind it? You said you just started it out there through this graphic novel turning into the book. Where did the story come from? Like, where did that originate for you? So I was, I was, I've always been a hardcore reader, and I binge read the the Night Angel series by Brent Weeks, and he's got like the main character Kylar Sturd is this young guy. I didn't really like him so much, but the older mentor character Durzo Blint, he's you know sort of forties, functionally immortal, badass weapon peak of his powers, cynical. He was everything that I wanted to read in a character, and I just didn't get enough of him. And then when I found out that the trilogy ended and there were going to be no more books, I decided I was going to write my own because that was the character that I really wanted to read. So then, I mean, I created The Hunter very much as a, not as a carbon copy, but as a sort of an homage to Durzo Blint because there's a lot of similarities between the two of them initially. There, and then once, once his story gets started... It's different in a lot of different ways, but that that was the initial sort of blueprint for the character. I just really liked that character profile. Someone instead of going through the whole you know training montage or discovering their powers or things like that, he's got everything unlocked. He's already badass, you know, full. He's at peak badass, 
And so that was that was the character that I wanted to write. That was a character I wanted to read. So it was just it's been so much fun creating that guy. And then from his story, everything else sprang into life. Yeah, for sure. And it kind of leads to my next question about um, what comes first, the plot or the characters. And it's you, uh, breath of fresh air to read about a character that is fully developed and already kind of figuring it out from there, rather than the typical like coming into their own. So that's kind of cool to get into. But for you. What's first? Plot, characters? Characters, 100%. I mean, I've got to have kind of a general plot idea, but it always starts with the characters because the characters are what hook me on an idea. And and like you said, the the it's fun. It's more enjoyable sometimes to read those fully developed characters because when you don't have to worry about developing their powers or when you don't have to worry maybe about the sort of the emotional journey that a coming-of-age story would have, you get to see the story in a totally new light. Like, had I written The Hunter as someone who was learning his, you know, his way around a sword, it would be totally different than the outcast, loner sort of person looking for a place in a world where he doesn't belong. It's a totally different kind of story. And so I like those stories because as somewhat of an adult myself, um, I like I like focusing on the kind of stories that, that are relevant to me, the kind of people that I would be interested in, in interacting with or hanging out with. So I always begin with at least a rough idea of who this character is. Usually the profession is what is what gets me hooked like the assassin i always love assassins uh thieves bounty hunter special ops soldiers you know i like i like the more active dynamic often violent personality types and then from there i think about okay what kind of what kind of thing would make them interesting to me and that's kind of where it goes so the character and the plot almost develop side by side because the 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 characters where it starts but then i want my character to fight bad guys who are these bad guys why are they such a challenge that right there goes more towards story and then okay how does how does the world you know how does this world exist with these good guys and these bad guys on two opposite sides okay then it goes to the world building and now how does this character fit into this world okay a little bit more world building. Now, how does this character's place in this world shape who he is? And so it's this sort of cycle where everything feeds into itself and it creates this, this I would say, this organic world that comes alive beginning with this, this rough idea of who the character is. Looking at that then, if you're going character-based, with your series as a whole, right now you have seven books. Uh, is that what your plan was originally? Did you know how it was going to end? Kind of... How did that grow and develop as you started writing? So when I sat down to write the graphic novel script, I knew I wanted to write this graphic novel because, you know, that was I, I was pitching this idea to this publisher. And by the end of it, I realized there's so much more that I want to tell about this story. So then I realized, okay, it's probably going to be longer than this. It'll probably be a trilogy. And as I started writing the second or the third book, it just kept getting bigger and bigger because I couldn't, you know, solve all of his problems right away. I couldn't answer all of the questions. I had to sort of focus on one thing at a time. So I think by the, by the third book, I realized it was going to take five or six to actually finish it out. And, and then I sat down and kind of had just a rough idea of where he needed to go, who he was going to face, where he needed to end up. And so that's how I sort of came to the conclusion that uh, six books was the right end for his story arc. But as I came to the end of that six-book story arc, um, all of the questions opened up in books one through five are answered in book six. But then there's some little threads that get left dangling in book six that I just could not leave un unexplored. Like, there are some amazing character elements that 
were never included or that were only barely touched on that when, you know, when I continue to write more of his story, it'll evolve him or it'll evolve the characters around him or the relationships with the people, but then also some stuff with the world and the religion and the society and all of that. So basically I realized, yeah, six books is the, the first story arc done. Now I've got to write more. And so it'll probably end up being another five to eight books before his story is fully and satisfyingly told. All right. So do you have an idea of where that's going to end then? Do you already know kind of what it will be like? Absolutely. Absolutely. I actually came up with the ending while I was writing the Heirs of Destiny series, which is a sort of a sequel spinoff. Some of the younger characters that he he encounters in his in his journey, they go off on their own mission or they join him in his quest to achieve the spoilery thing at the end of book six. And, and then they, they go off on their own journey. And I, that was just supposed to be written as a standalone, um, you know, with these young characters that other readers had, had fallen in love with through his story. And by the end of it, I was like, Oh my God, I just figured out this massive problem that I had set up for him in book six. So now I kind of have, a pretty good idea of where I need to take him. I still haven't sat down to outline the rest of the series, um, but that is going to happen in the next few weeks, and I'm going to figure out exactly how to get him from where he is now in book seven to the big climactic world-shattering ending that I want. One thing I found really interesting while reading it is that it basically takes place in one location, and also it it follows the hunter. Like, it's his story alone. There's I can't even really pick out like a secondary character. There are a few that come up a lot and have an important part of the story, but it's really just, it's the hunter. It's his story alone. What inspired you to kind of take that route rather than the traditional epic fantasy where they're all over the place and there's a cast of a hundred and why'd you choose this one? Because I really do like to dive into the psyche or the mindset of these characters. And as I was as I was crafting the character, I mean, number one, he's an assassin. The chances of an assassin taking on an apprentice or something like that is very, very low. Like, it's very unrealistic for a, an assassin type like the Hunter to work with someone like in the Kylar Stern, I mean, the Night Angel series or an Assassin's Apprentice by R.J. Barker. Like, it's it's a different vibe. And so following his story, he just he was just a loner, which is which makes perfect sense, you know, for operational security. You know, no one can no one knows who you are. No one can betray you pretty much right off the bat. Um, But then, you know, following just his perspective, it made it easier to set up mysteries and stuff and surprises and plot twists and reveals that had I had a secondary character, maybe they would have had the point of view where it would have been less revealing or less surprising. And and for me, it's just really easy to stick within one character's head and continue that through line uh, without jumping around between characters. Yeah. I noticed a few times you would be in the head of a different character as um, just to kind of help introduce the scene in the setting, but then immediately jump right back to the hunter and his perspective and his everything that's just playing in his brain. So it was, yeah. it was well, that's actually that's actually a rookie mistake. Um, you know that that head hopping is the kind of thing that that amateur writers do. This was my first book written, so yeah. I, I'm I'm excused a few mistakes. No, and but I, I had a lot of fun with it coming up with these throwaway characters that you know they're basically there to. To be terrified by the hunter, yep. to end up killed gruesomely. Yeah. It's kind of fun. Yeah. And no, and I understand what you're saying about that being a rookie thing, but I felt the separation in there when it was changing perspective. I could see that. So it, it wasn't like a randomly jumping around all at the same time sort of thing. It was 
you had this perspective from this kind of introduction character and hey, here's what's going on. And oh, what the hell is that noise over there? And then it was the hunter in his story from there. So it, it kind of helps to sell the hunter who he is because people are terrified of him. If it's always in his head, you never realize how utterly terrifying he is until you see it from someone else's perspective. Oh my God, the hunter is stalking the port. I'm about to lose my shit. Literally, you know, yeah. that's so that was kind of oh, like yeah. the intention behind oh, yeah. doing I that. I think one of the very first times you did it, he was as I think the second chapter, he was coming back from this first little mission. He's in that alley and he just wants to like, let me just walk by you guys. I don't want to get involved. That was a really cool scene to just set the whole stage because from their perspective, they're like, Oh, this guy's nothing. And the scene evolves and changes. And then we know what happens from there. Um, I guess, tell me a little bit about the plot and what's going on without giving away spoilers, because I don't want to ruin it for anyone that wants to read the story because why would we do that? Um, but just kind of give me a feel for um, the plot. What's going on? What's happening? So the hunter of Varamis, this is his is nom de guerre. Basically, he doesn't even know his own name. He's this badass assassin. He gets the highest paid jobs. He you know pull. He can do anything. Basically, he can kill anybody. That's sort of his his mo. Is that no matter who you know, who or how difficult, he'll take him down. Um, but that's just one facet of his personality. In addition to his being a badass, he's got this magical dagger that feeds him power every time he kills because it consumes the souls of his victims. But it's almost like a mix between a drug and a hallucination in the sense of he wants to be shut of it. He wants to be free of it. But every time he lets too much time elapse between kills, the voice in his head grows stronger and stronger and stronger to the to where it actually manifests like a migraine headache. And he, he like... He never lets it get bad enough that it'll shut him down completely, but it is, you know, it could, it could get that bad. And so he's become an assassin sort of out of necessity in the sense of catering to this dagger's desires and keeping it satiated and also by choice because, you know, it makes good money. And so it's this really interesting dichotomy between the, the need and the desire. He wants to, to find his place in this world, but he's got to be a killer to sort of keep the dagger satiated. So... It explores his journey. He's sort of got a moral code that he, not very well defined, especially not in his mind. It's not like he's, you know, the writing on the wall, the Ten Commandments. Yeah. But he's got, you know, there are people that he protects, and then there are people that he protects them from. And anybody he protects them from is fair game. He's not going to kill people randomly. Like, he goes on a, on, a, on a hit, he takes out his target, no problem, and then guards break into the room, and he thinks they're just doing their job. And he... He, he runs away instead of fighting them. He could take them all on no problem, but he doesn't want to drop bodies unnecessarily. So he's kind of that, he's an assassin with a moral code, not a very um, modern moral code, yeah. but there is a, there is a morality yeah. to it. While you were writing this story, what surprised you about it? Like as you developed the character and the plot and everything, was there anything that you're like, well, that's kind of crazy? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And so the, the one thing that surprised me so much was how, like, his feelings of loneliness and isolation. I didn't set out to write that big, but, you know, like I said, you can't have an assassin who is flaunting it in public, or at least not in this world that I've created. So he's got to keep his himself uh, concealed. So he goes to uh, sort of a portside bar. And he's wearing a disguise and he's alone in the middle of that crowd. And then he goes to a fancy party and he's wearing a disguise and he's alone in the middle of that crowd. So everywhere he goes, he is alone. He is outside looking in. And that's something that, that I, I sort of did subconsciously. And I realized that that was something that I'd written in because of my own 
past the, you know, the, I was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome a few years ago. And so I've always felt like the outsider in every situation. So I could be sitting with my wife and her family or with my family or with my friends. And I still feel a little bit like that outsider looking in. So that was something that sort of came out without my thinking about it. And, but then once I realized that it really made sense to the character and it gave me something to explore, not only his perspective, but my feelings on the subject, how I could find my place in, in this world that he'd created. So it was sort of like a, an evolution for me as a person, as well as the character. Yeah. And even hearing that, that's a lot more depth for me as a reader, just kind of knowing the character, how it kind of relates to you and your story. So that's, that's really cool. So thank you for sharing that. As, as a reader, I always love um, diving into kind of covers and titles and trying to find secret hidden meetings because I always <laughs> think that they're, they have to be. So is there a secret meaning with your cover or is it just like this is him? So with Dark Blade Assassin, Dark Blade Assassin was a name chosen because it's got all the awesome keywords. It's got dark, it's got blade, it's got assassin, hero, darkness. You know, it, it, it immediately tells you what it is. But the original title of the book was Blade of the Destroyer. And that had three meanings. So number one is the dagger that he wields is the blade, right? And yeah. he's the destroyer, right? He's this sort of destroyer personality. So it's talking about like the focus was on the dagger. But the dagger is also a tool being used by someone else that he doesn't know about until later. Yeah. So then he's like, oh, my goodness. But then he is also the blade of the destroyer. He's a tool being used by someone else as well. And so... It kind of like like the the title had all all three of those meanings and all of them made sense and I like I, I I realized that after I created the title like I I knew that the dagger was the blade of the destroyer but then when I had came to the end of the book I was like whoa this has these yeah. three meanings it, it really worked out nicely <laughs> right now the the title is just that's what it is and it's just it's just a super on genre title that everybody immediately knows what they're getting oh yeah gets all those Amazon keywords. Um, anything with the cover then? Is that pretty straightforward as well? It's just that's the hunter and yeah. his glory. Yeah. Yeah. The only, probably the only thing about it would be that it's blue. And I love, I love the color blue sort of as the entryway. So if you look at all of my book one covers, they're all blue. <laughs> really? Yeah. That is a, I didn't notice that, but I'm going to have to check that out now. When you look at it now, there are four blue book ones each a different shade of blue the artist does an amazing yeah. job of sort of tweaking it just enough that that they all look so different so yeah but there's four four book one covers in blue that's really cool i like that while reading the book i noticed that there were a lot of pretty dark scenes and heavy scenes and there's one i'm thinking of in particular i won't say it i'm sure you know what it is but when you're writing these emotionally draining scenes how do you kind of get in the mood for that because as a reader that it takes a lot for me to get out of it when I've just read about something horrible happening. I'm like, damn, that sucked. Like, how do you do it as an author? Um, I'm actually pretty good at stepping away from it. Uh, it's getting into it that's the challenge. But but I'll usually have music. I will, you know, I've got a playlist that inevitably, I set it on random, and there's always a song that sort of comes on that sparks whatever mood that I need to be in. But but a lot of it is just setting the scene. And I, I do that, but with the, the sensory details, that really helps me. You know, I get the smell of the place or the look or the feel or the, you know, the even something as simple as the weather. You know, it, uh, there's it's a hot night or it's a cold night, whatever it is, 
it helps me to get sort of in the scene and I feel like I'm there or I can picture myself being there. And then once I'm grounded in the sensory details, then it's a little easier to sort of slip into the emotional details because I can feel what the character would feel like when he's there and and sort of call on that, draw on that. And of course, drawing on my own memories for that particular scene, I thought of my own kids and what how I would feel if something like that happened. And it was, you know... It was an instant switch. I was like, oh, I, I got this. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I have a two-year-old and I felt that. I was like, oh man, yep, okay. Try not to get too much into what the scene actually is, but I agree. So if you had to pick kind of one overarching theme of the entire book or series, what would that be? So I set out to write this badass assassin story and I didn't really know where it was going, but then this title, Hero of Darkness, just worked and it kind of burrowed into my brain in the sense that he doesn't start out a hero and he doesn't end up heroic, but he is a hero because he makes the choices time and again to stand between evil and the people who need his protection or not even evil, you know, just even sort of callous cruelty or greed, whatever it is, just people who want whatever they want are willing to do whatever it takes to get it. He's the one who says, I'm going to stand up to this. And so he becomes a hero in that sense. And, and, and I really like that takeaway because it doesn't take heroic nature. It doesn't take, you know, any sort of nobility of spirit. All it takes is just that one decision to stand up and say, you know, I'm, I'm standing. I'm not going to let this happen. And defending those who can't defend themselves. Looking at kind of the Amazon and Goodreads pages for your book, you've gotten around like 200 reviews. So a lot of people are giving feedback on the story and everything. I want to know if there's anything that people um, are misunderstanding or getting confused about that you want to just clear up. Like, is there a part of the story, the plot that you're like, you guys are getting it wrong. Like, here is what's actually going on. I do think a lot of people kind of get stuck on the fact that it dives into this assassin psyche. Like most people go into it expecting sort of a, of a badass story, you know, someone who goes into it and he just kills everybody. And that's kind of where it goes. And those are, those are fun stories. I love a good vengeance driven plot, as you can see by the last third or so of the book. But yeah. I find that I can't just do that. I, I, I love action scenes. They're my favorite part of the story to write. But I always need to temper them with the other aspect, the character building, the emotional depth, because that's what makes those action scenes so much more realistic. Had this bad thing that we're talking about not happened, the hunter would never have gone on his rampage, right? So it would have felt totally inorganic or would have been far more contrived, like I was pushing the plot along as opposed to the character making an organic decision. So people are like, oh, I'm struggling to get into it, into the beginning of the book. I've had, I had someone say I'm 40% of the way in and I've put it down twice. And I get that because of the first beginning is it's world building. It's sort of setting the stage, introducing yeah. the character, introducing the, the circumstances. And again, it's the first book I ever wrote. So if it's not perfect, well, you know, it is what it is. But, <laughs> but people who go into it expecting just nonstop balls to the wall action, they're going to be disappointed or they may, they may find that it's not what they expect. And if they're okay with, diving a little bit deeper into the character's mind, they'll come away with a super, super better understanding of who this guy is and through him, a little bit better understanding of who they are too. That's a good point. One thing I always do when I'm reading, I always kind of have to picture someone as the character because I want to have it in my head. Like, who is this person? Um, I always think of a famous actor or something. So if you were going to make your book into a movie, who would you cast to play the hunter? Man, that's really tough. So I think I would have cast Gerard Butler in his 300 days. Because that would have been okay. that would have been perfect. 
Um, Gerard Butler, as he is now, might not work. Uh, Jason Momoa was a pretty a pretty close fit. Um, okay. I think I think he's probably the best the one best suited to play it. Although, if Tom Hiddleston could could like buff up to sort of meet the hunter's physicality, I think he would he would really do it well. So I'll tell you when I was reading it, the actor I was kind of picturing was um, a, like a Jeremy Renner. Uh, I know he's he's kind of like a built guy. He's not like huge and intimidating, but he seems like he could blend in easily in a lot of situations and not be one to stand out. Um, so that's kind of who I had in my brain. Um, so yeah, I like it. Jeremy Renner from the Bourne. Yeah, yeah. Or I was even thinking like movie. way back uh, the movie SWAT. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's Jeremy Renner was in that. I loved him in it. That's where I like fell in love with him as an actor. But that's kind of where my brain went. So very cool. As we kind of wrap up our interview here and get towards the end of our time, um, is there anything you want to plug with your readers? Do you want to let them know where to find you, um, social media? I'll have links to your book and some social media pages um, in the description as well. But anything you want to plug, what you're working on now? Yeah, for sure. Well, I, so I'm releasing the, the Silent Champion series. This is military fantasy, think Rainbow Six, you know, special ops operating behind the scenes, but set in a fantasy world. And the cool thing is every single book that I've written in my fantasy is the same world with characters that cross over. Like in the book that's releasing in next week, they face off against the hunter. All seven of them go up against him. And the only reason that they survive the encounter or don't is because there's seven of them. Like it's kind of fun to play with that. So I, I knew I wanted to bring him in and this is him before the events of dark blade assassin. So he, you know, before he goes through the emotional development to becoming the hero, he's still very much the badass that we meet at the beginning of the book. So, and, and I get, I, I get to tie it in with the queen of thieves series and the heirs of destiny series and all of these stories, they're all interconnected. So once you're into my world, there's always somewhere else to go, something else to read. And, and all of the stories, no matter how, how different they are. I mean, this one's, this new one's military. There was a young adult, the heirs of destiny, the queen of thieves is more grimdark, but they all have that same flavor in the sense of they combine this action adventure with this sort of deep dive into the psyche of the characters. Um, that, that I think makes the books a lot more more than just enjoyable, an, a satisfying read emotionally. I will say you, the Silent Champion, those covers have been catching my eye a lot. So I'm a fan of them, and that's one I want to dive into as well. So it's good to hear that they tie in together. I'll be excited to read that. It's a, I mean, I wrote that one because I loved the Rainbow Six series. Oh, yeah. Um, but I'd never read anything like it in fantasy, so I, I had to do it. Okay. Well, cool. <laughs> I'm excited for it. Anything else you want to plug? Where is the best place for people to find you? If they want to connect with you, where should they go? For sure. So you can find me on Facebook as Andy Peliquin. I've also got my reader group, Andy Peliquin's Fantasy Fiends. And then I run the Fantasy Fiends podcast every Thursday night with my co-host, Stevie Collier. You can find that on YouTube, Podbean. Those are probably the best places to find me or my website, andypeliquin.com. Sounds good. Well, thank you again, Andy, for... Uh, taking some time to talk with us today and sharing a little bit more about your book. All right. Uh, thank you all for listening to that interview with Andy Peliquin. I hope you enjoyed it and you learned something about him and his series. I know I did, even after having read the books already. So what happens next is that uh, following this brief outro, we do have a sneak peek into Andy's works. But there is a little catch with that because of some um, rights issues with uh, Darkblade Assassin. Uh, we aren't able to include the audio for that, which normally we will. 
look for that in future episodes. But Andy has provided us with some audio into another book of his, Child of the Night Guild. So we'll be listening to a brief uh, portion of that and kind of hearing Andy's voice as an author and what his stories are like. The other last piece is that uh, there is going to be a review up online with this that uh, dives into Darkblade Assassin and the story as a whole. So you're welcome to check that out at jntpress.com slash reviews. It'll be live on there when this podcast drops. So you can look for that there. And I thank you all for listening. If you liked this podcast, please head over to your uh, app of choice, leave a rating and review and recommend it to a fellow uh, book lover friend that you think would enjoy this information. Thank you all. And I'll see you next time. And here you go with a sneak peek of Child of the Night Guild. Chapter One Viola huddled in darkness, shivering. The sobs and whimpers of the other children echoed in the close, stale air. Her back ached from hours, or has it been days, of sitting on hard stone. Confusion drowned out her fear. How could Papa abandon me? She hugged her knees tighter and rocked. Bright lady, hear me and protect me in my hour of need. She whispered the prayer over and over, clinging to the litany like a lifeline. She wouldn't succumb to her terror. The door swung open, and she shielded her eyes from the harsh light. Up, little uns! A man's voice, gruff, impatient. Time to meet your master! Viola tried to stand, but her legs refused to cooperate. She couldn't remember the last time she'd eaten. She swallowed. Her tongue felt thick and coarse, her throat filled with grit. Up, I said! Viola lowered her hands and blinked back tears. A bearded man stared down, the fire in his eyes matching the torch in his hands. She shrank back, for the first time realising she was alone in the cell. The man snarled. Are you deaf, child? Viola shook her head. Just stupid and useless, are you? Again, Viola shook her head. Her parched throat refused to form words. Then why in the watcher's horny elbows are you not on your feet? She struggled to stand, but her knees gave way. With a curse, the man seized her and dragged her upright. His fingers dug into her arm and she cried out. He shoved her forward. Now walk! Viola stumbled toward the door and caught herself on the frame. Her legs wobbled, but she stood. The man pushed past. Keep up or else! She shuffled to catch up to the other children. After the rank air of the room, Viola welcomed the musty odour of the passageways. Flickering torchlight set the shadows dancing through the tunnels of earth and stone. The dim light sent an eerie glow over the markings etched into the walls. She shivered. The sound of sobs and shuffling filled the tunnels. The passageways twisted and turned, rising up a gentle incline. Before she'd taken a dozen steps, Viola's lungs begged for air and her legs burned. She refused to slow. It would make the man angry. He looked meaner than her father, even after Papa had drunk too much. 
The stone walls and low roof gave way to a massive open space. Lanterns hung from the walls, casting light on an enormous chamber nearly the size of Old Town Market. The ceiling rose beyond the torchlight, and a chill wind gusted through the room. A man stood in the centre. His beard looked like Papa's after a week without shaving. A tall hat flopped at an awkward angle. Silver shone in both his ears and in one of his teeth. He spread his arms wide. "'Come in, my little cherubs, come in. Stand over there. And you, take your place there. Over there, my lad. Yes, good.' He rubbed his hands together. His smile reminded Viola of Master Umlai's cat after he caught a mouse, though with fewer teeth. But it was his waistcoat that drew Viola's eye. Bright as a tomato, it looked out of place against the rest of the man's dun-coloured clothing. The man stared at them, a beatific smile on his face. "'Welcome, my sweets. I know some of you are quite uncertain of what is going on, but rest assured, all of your questions will be answered in time.' Viola's knees trembled. Something about the grinning man in his bright red vest sent a chill down her spine. He rubbed his stomach with a filthy hand. "'You may call me Master Velvet.' For the next ten years, the Night Guild will be as mother and father to you. For a short time, you, my dears, will be as my children. It's my duty to work the useless out of you. By the time you leave these walls, you'll be ready to join the ranks of productive Guild members. Ten years? A tear squeezed from Viola's eye and a sob burst from her throat. A boy on her left snuffled and wiped snot on his shirt. "'You, my pet! Yes, you! Come up here!' He pointed at her with a crooked finger. She didn't want to go, but what would he do if she refused? Hands trembling, her stomach in knots, she shuffled forward. Master Velvet wrapped an arm around her shoulder. "'What's your name, child?' Up close, he looked even more like a grinning cat. Viola expected him to pounce and gobble her up. She broke into shaking sobs. I want to go home to my papa. Well, that sounds like a silly name for such a pretty little thing. Master Velvet smiled his gap-toothed grin. Tell me your name, my sweet. Viola. Look at me, Viola. He gripped her chin and tilted her face up. Viola flinched and tried to push his hands away, but he held her fast. Your name was Viola. No longer. You have no name. He turned to the rest of the children. All of you. Forget the name your mother screamed when she birthed you. Forget the name your father spat as he beat you. The names you once knew are gone. You are all nameless. And nameless you will remain until you have proven yourselves worthy. He glared down at Viola. Do you understand? She wiped her tears and nodded. Yes. Yes, what? The chill in his voice made Viola shudder. 
Yes, master, for velvet. She swallowed the lump in her throat. Good. Master Velvet released her face and shoved her toward the huddled children. He clasped his hands behind his back and paced up the line. Now, pay attention, my pretties. Forget your homes. Forget your families. You will never see them again. You belong to the Knights Guild now. Master Velvet stopped and stared at each child in turn. The smile on his face failed to reach his cold, dark eyes. You represent a significant investment on the part of the Night Guild. He stabbed a finger at the huddled mass. Each of you has been paid for with Guild coin. Your eighth name day has come and gone, and now you belong to us. We do not take investments lightly. You will be given the skills needed to repay our investment. Those who do not... The feline smile widened his face. Suffice it to say, my darlings, you do not want to find out what happens to those who fail to provide a return. Master Velvet reached into the breast pocket of his waistcoat. Look at this coin. A silver drake, as ordinary as each of you. But watch! Master Velvet waved his hands, and a silk cloth replaced the coin. The children gasped in surprise and delight. It has become a handkerchief, fit for any gentleman in the king's court. Or has it? Fire blazed, and the cloth burned away to reveal a dagger. A steel blade, perfect for all manner of useful tasks. The dagger danced in his fingers reflecting the torchlight. Viola gaped, her eyes transfixed by the flashing steel. Suddenly, the dagger vanished, and the silver drake reappeared in Master Velvet's fingers. He rolled the coin from knuckle to knuckle, flipped it in the air, and held it up for them to see. It must be magic! His snaggletooth grin turned into a sneer, and he drew the scarf and dagger from within his sleeves. Wrong! There is no magic here. The magic is in your fingers, in your minds, and in your tongues. You will learn to harness this magic. You will learn the skills that will keep you alive as you serve the Night Guild. He stopped beside Viola and placed a hand on her shoulder. The gesture reminded her of Mama, but his eyes held the chill she'd seen in Papa's before he handed her to Ilter. Get this through your head. We are not your family. We are your masters, and you will serve without hesitation. Obey, and the rewards will be great. Disobey, and the consequences will be severe. Do you understand? Y yes. Viola's parched throat made it difficult to croak out the words. Master Velvet turned his gaze on the other children. All of you, heed my warning. Look around you. His gesture encompassed the massive room. Take it in, for this will be your new home. You will not see the sun until you have earned the right to breathe clean air. Know this. You belong to the Night Guild, body and soul. The growl of Viola's stomach sounded loud in the large room. 
Master Velvet's feline grin returned. My poor little angels, you must all be hungry and thirsty. It is a good thing we have prepared a feast in your honour. He released Viola's shoulder and beckoned for the children to follow. Come this way, my pretties. See how we reward those who heed. Viola followed Master Velvet to the table at the far end of the room. The smell of fresh bread wafted from cloth-covered baskets. Bowls filled with nuts and dried fruits sat next to trays heaped high with sweetmeats. Viola joined the others in a mad rush to the table. She bit into a pastry, heedless of the grime staining her hands. The sweet taste of heavy cream filled her mouth. The pastry disappeared in two bites, and she reached for another. Master Velvet stood on the other side of the table, the cat-like grin on his unkempt face. Yes, my dearies, eat up. Plenty of sweets for the sweet. He held out a cup. You must be thirsty, little one. Viola drained the honeyed water in a single draught. A fistful of raisins and a third cream-filled pastry followed. Her stomach soon protested, yet she ate until the table stood bare. Come, come, my darlings! Master Velvet wiped traces of food from the corner of one young boy's mouth. You must be sleepy. We have cosy beds where you can sleep the night through. Seizing a torch, he led them down a short hall. He opened the door and stepped into a darkened chamber. The torchlight revealed a windowless room filled with rows of bunks lining the walls. This, my cherubs, is where you will make your home for the immediate future. Choose your beds wisely. The children rushed into the room, knocking Viola to the floor. Someone stepped on her arm and she cried out. Master Velvet didn't bother to help her up. Hurry, child, or all the good cots will be taken. Viola climbed to her feet and shuffled toward the nearest available bed, cradling her throbbing arm against her chest. Tears carved streaks through the dust on her cheeks. Master Velvet murmured in her ear, Before you allow those tears to stain your new blanket, my pretty, give thanks to the gods that you were sent here. He leered at her, and her stomach recoiled from his breath. He smelled like Master Umlai's slaughterhouse on a hot day. There are worse fates than this. That I can promise you. Viola nodded and wiped her cheeks. Yep, yes, Master Velvet. Master Velvet patted her head and placed a kiss on her forehead. There's a good girl. Viola suppressed a shudder. She wanted to pull away, but that would make him angry. He had the same wild look she'd seen in Papa's eyes when he found his bottle empty. Now, off with you. Stomach twisting, Viola hurried to her bunk. A ratty, moth-eaten blanket lay in a heap at one end of the bed. The straw-tick mattress was lumpy and uneven, and the wooden frame dug into her back. Maybe Papa will come for me in the morning and take me home. He had to. She didn't want to spend another day in this dark place. She hated the way Master Velvet touched her and looked. I just want to go back to my sewing, mending, and gardening. Master Velvet's voice brought her hopes crashing to the ground. 
Sleep well, my cherubs. Tomorrow you begin a new life. The door shut with a clang, plunging them into darkness, the room filled with hushed sobs and whimpers. Viola shivered and pulled the ragged blanket up around her shoulders. She longed for her own bed, with the comforter that smelled like mamma. She wanted to smell the violas, lilies and roses in her garden, feel the soft earth beneath her toes. Mamma's words came to her. Stand tall, my flower, no matter what. Always keep your head up. Tears flowed anew, and she didn't stop them. I'm trying to stand tall, Mamma, but I'm scared. When she closed her eyes, Master Velvet and his leering grin filled her world.